2020 was the year in which the weight of the built environment and all the products and consumables that we manufacture exceeded that of the total biomass, the weight of all animals and plants on the planet. The weight of our buildings, bridges, vehicles, mobile phones, single-use plastics, it all massed in at 1.1 trillion tonnes. Concrete, aggregates, brick, asphalt and metals account for the great majority of that. The built environment has a massive and exponentially growing impact on the Earth. The researchers who published their findings in the journal Nature gave a horrifying warning that at present rates of production, the mass of all the stuff that we make, consume and ultimately discard will have tripled by 2040. Engineers are at the heart of the problem, busily designing and building the infrastructure that society and the economy want and need. Engineers are converting the Earth's resources into man-made materials, driving climate change, contributing to a new era of mass extinction across the animal and plant kingdoms, and placing natural resources under unsustainable stress. Along with global health pandemics, they're among the big, hairy, scary challenges highlighted in the 2021 Global Risks Report, published on the 19th of January by the World Economic Forum. But we're not here to wallow in doom and gloom. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we have partnered with Mott McDonald to talk about pandemic resilient infrastructure, interconnected systems, regenerative design, artificial intelligence, and saving the world. We will be exploring some of the ways that engineers can protect against the risks to our environment, economy, and society, undo some of the damage, and make our built environment better. The first Global Risks Report was published by the World Economic Forum, or WEF, in 2006 to understand the global risk landscape as seen by business leaders. It ranked risks both by likelihood and the severity of their impact. The world in 2006 was worried about terrorism following the 7-7 suicide bomb attacks in London and influenza following a major outbreak of H5N1 bird flu in Southeast Asia. There was also the perceived risk of an oil price strike above $80. It actually peaked in nearly twice that, reaching $147 in July 2008. Climate change was also included as one of the report's four key risk scenarios, but in language much more muted than it is today. It was described as a long-term issue, still not fully understood, and that the risks were uncertain. Moving to 2021 and the 16th report, the seven most likely risks are seen as extreme weather, climate action failure, human environmental damage, infectious diseases, biodiversity loss, the concentration of digital power in too few hands, and a new form of social inequality, digital inequality. The top risks by impact are seen as infectious diseases, climate action failure, weapons of mass destruction, biodiversity loss, natural resources crisis, 
human environmental damage and crises in people's ability to sustain a livelihood. You may be thinking, a lot of these risks feel interconnected, and they are. There has also been a high degree of consistency over the years. The way the risks are expressed changes, but the underlying problems don't. Looking back over the last decade, one change has been that economic risks have given way to more environmental concerns, which is understandable. But with one big new entry, unsurprisingly, the big obvious risk on everyone's mind following 2020 is the risk of infectious disease. It last took a prominent position in the 2015 report as a result of the West African Ebola outbreak and now it is back with vengeance, thanks to COVID-19. It's almost as if people have short memories. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, particularly in, in where I work at the moment in the UK, it's easy to forget about not just Ebola, but SARS and MERS and uh, avian flu, swine flu. There have been a lot of outbreaks over the last couple of decades. This is Anthony Hazar. He's a former practicing medical doctor who has transitioned into health resilience and currently works as the global health security lead at Mott McDonald. He recalls past epidemics which caused major economic impacts, even in countries that escaped mass outbreaks. I think only six cases of SARS that made it to Australia. Yet the economic impact to Australia was significant because it stopped all trading and the hospitality industry slowed down for a little bit. Um, you know, it was, it was a couple of notches off the GDP percentage for the year, even though they only had, I think, six cases it was um, when, when that happened. So, so people do forget quickly. You mentioned 2015 Ebola sort of put infectious diseases high on the, the radar of a lot of world leaders. Uh, and then people forgot about it. Um, and, and here we are again in 2021 and infectious diseases back up there. And it should be. Anthony says the report does not entirely appreciate the threat. I think the report says that there are new organisms every four months. The number of outbreaks is actually a lot higher than that in, in the real world. There are thousands of outbreaks. Some of them are very small, just sort of food, local food poisoning outbreaks that take place that public health authorities may measure if they find out about them, but there's a lot that we don't find out about as well. Um, interestingly, the World Health Organization track about 200 epidemics per year. 200 epidemics tracked every year by the World Health Organization. These are not the food poisoning outbreaks. These are the diseases that have the potential to become much, much bigger. And of those, most of them are controlled. So, so we don't uh, we don't hear about it so much in, in the mainstream media. But it gives you an idea of scale that, that, you know, if you've got 200 epidemics that the World Health Organization are tracking each year, you, know, you only need to get one lucky organism or, or one unlucky person jumping on a plane for this to turn into something quite big in infrastructure, in transport, in globalization, in building better transport networks to connect cities and countries. I think with a lot of those successes, you've also increased the ease with which infectious diseases can spread between people and between countries. As well as improved connectivity, the world is changing in other ways that make certain diseases more likely. For example, the climate is an intersecting risk here. Yeah, uh, climate for sure. So um, if, you know, if things are warming up, a number of diseases come from, from 
animal origins or, or at least rely on, on vectors, so insects that transmit diseases between organisms uh, or between species. And the warmer it gets, the more insects you have, for example, that's one one reason you can also get more outbreaks uh, with, with climate change. And then there is population. There's also the increase in, in population density and, and something we call One Health, which is that intersection between uh, human health, animal health, uh, the environment, water. So with uh, increased mixing of people and animals, so intensive farming, um, agriculture, all of these things um, increase the risk of organisms mutating or organisms jumping from species. In short, the risks of a health-related emergency are increasing from multiple factors. And we're more likely to see outbreaks on a, on a larger scale. And that's particularly true if we don't invest in, in preventing and preparing for the next big outbreak. So what can be done? A lot of Anthony's time is currently spent advising asset and building owners on possible trajectories for the coronavirus pandemic, reminding them that this could continue for some time and looking at ways they can reduce risk. This is a field that is on the move, and Anthony is now working with a growing number of infrastructure owners and operators who want to protect their customers and revenue. So ones that don't exist yet, but they're interested in what are the types of strategies we should be looking to introduce to reduce our risk from other pandemics that don't exist yet. So they might not be respiratory. You know, there are other ways of disease transmission, whether it's touch, through the water, bodily fluids, etc. So so it's just helping them think through the types of thing they should, things they should think about when they're planning new facilities or new infrastructure and ways in which they can try and reduce that risk. In the more extreme cases, this can involve increasing the flexibility of our structures. We're trying to get new buildings to think about flexibility and adaptability. So you might build a, a stadium, but it might potentially have a secondary function as a field hospital, uh, or as a rehabilitation centre, or a vaccination centre, for example. So if that were the case, you want them to think ahead about what types of engineering design spec would need to be in place. So you're looking to design things from the beginning that don't try and cut as many corners as possible for the function in hand right now, but that leave the options and opportunities open for it to turn into something else downstream sh should the circumstances arise. And that might not be a healthy emergency, it might be something completely different, but it's think about having flexibility. The Nightingale Hospitals, created by converting stadiums, arenas and exhibition centres at the start of the COVID crisis, are a good example of flexibility in use that Anthony is working to build into existing and new facilities. He's also working to reconfigure buildings and infrastructure to reduce the risk of transmission and keep people safe. We've created some, some sort of quantitative models based on, on the epidemiological evidence that we have available to us that allows us to look at how people travel through facilities as well and the distancing you might need between them. There are areas like ventilation. Um, and interestingly, you know, at, at the company I work with, I only recently discovered that there are actually different experts who look at ventilation in tunnels versus ventilation within carriages within tunnels. Then there's people's behaviours and work patterns. Does everyone need to be in the office? 
can some people work remotely or at a different site? When people are in the facility, do they need to be there for two or three hours? Can they be there for only 10, 15 minutes instead? There is a huge role for digital in this arena, in using data to understand where infections originate and how they spread, and to prepare to control them. The World Bank and Global Preparedness Monitoring Board reckon there's a potential 10 to 20 times return on investment in preparedness. Being prepared is essential for resilience, the ability to bounce back, survive and thrive. And I would be keen for governments, institutions, organisations, planners to think about pandemic resilience proactively uh, rather than to wait for something to happen again to remind us how big a deal it is. Well, so that's my biggest fear that people forget about it. I was just talking to colleagues about surveillance for diseases in the wastewater. So this is an area where health and infrastructure and water and wastewater comes together. You know, this is something that I'm very fortunate to work in the company I do where we have water experts. I think the science is still evolving. There's still a lot of testing and trialing going on, but the potential to test wastewater as a sort of early warning system for new diseases is, is there as well. And that's an area that we, we ought to explore in more detail. Amanda Sturgeon is just the sort of infrastructure expert that Anthony has been talking to. And her focus is reducing the greatest long-term risk facing the planet, environmental risk. I'm Amanda Sturgeon and I'm Regenerative Design Lead at Mott McDonald through Asia Pacific, Australia and New Zealand. And what that involves is that I'm bringing regenerative thinking to projects across infrastructure, transport and the buildings and precinct scales. Regenerative design is a way engineers have of going beyond sustainability, but fundamentally it is about using data more effectively to make a positive environmental impact with everything we create. It's really about, uh, you know, generating more life and bringing into balance uh, the relationship between nature and people. I mean, we design pretty well, usually for people. You know, we know how to how to design for people, whether that be for transport projects or or, you know, roads or buildings or such, and we know how to make them functional for people, but we really lack the skills, I think, in terms of making them work for nature and ecology. And, um, you know, we're running out of time to restore the ecology that we've um, been sort of pretty dead set on destroying and, and taking from for the last 50 years. Infrastructure doesn't have to be single purpose. It can bring nature back into the built environment. Regenerative is really about turning that approach around in everything that we create and looking at how we bring people and nature into balance. Like, like how could we rewild our cities and how could we bring ecology into our rail projects and how could we bring even more biodiversity to a train station than was there, you know, before the train station was built, for example. It's about engineers using infrastructure and built environment projects as opportunities to counteract the negative impacts of all that man-made mass we opened the episode with. But Amanda is struck by another risk from the report, the damage being done to social cohesion and individual well-being, and she sees this as something regenerative design can help with. 
I think what we're seeing in the report, you know, outlines that is a breakdown of sort of social cohesion, isn't it? As we've got, you know, a large amount, large population, and we've got, you know, obviously a global pandemic that's fragmenting that population and um, and bringing a lot of fear, I think, into people's lives daily. I think we've we've gotten to a place where we're sort of looking to each other, aren't we, to, to solve the societal problems instead of looking at the planet as a whole and looking at all other living systems and our place within them. So, I mean, I guess I'm very much a proponent of this connection to nature and, you know, the ability to really be part of an ecology, actually really being positive for our social cohesion as well. This is known as biophilic design which is really just connecting the simple task of connecting people and nature in the built environment, whether that be, you know, connecting buildings and parks and right-of-ways, etc. But there has been a lot of studies about the benefit of that. Um, for example, there was one at the University of Michigan a few years ago that looked at, you know, if people spend an hour in nature, they're 20%, you know, more productive. There's been other studies that have looked at, you know, people healing faster just if they have access to windows. For 50 years, we have been building offices, factories and hospitals that don't even allow people natural light through the day. And that's a pretty basic thing. Yes, we we do actually like to have natural light and we do actually then our brain functions better. And so these you can you can sort of get these indicators such as better test scores in schools or you heal faster in a hospital, for example, out of just seeing people having access to daylight. That's pretty um, basic sort of study. But there have been a lot of studies of the benefits of nature lately, um, and I think that's because there's a lot of people alarmed at the limited access many people are getting. We've now got more people living in cities than outside, and you know, a lot of people, because of a lack of social equity, really, don't even have access to get outside the city and be immersed in the wilderness or have a chance to go on a holiday and be immersed in nature. In some cases, we have had winds completely by accident. Rail corridors became unintended green corridors as vegetation grows along the verges. This is an interesting thought. What if we created these links as green corridors by design? Amanda says engineers need to shift to thinking how to bring in ecology and biodiversity while they are solving a functional problem. To do this, she says we need to use non-anthropocentric design, designing for the natural world, not just for people. It's an example of systems thinking, awareness of connections, interdependencies, and cause and effect relationships, protection against negative unintended consequences, and the pursuit of positive intentional ones. Enter John Carstensen, the climate resilience lead for Mott McDonald, who has spent years thinking about systems and how you can make them work better for people and the environment. If you were thinking about traditionally engineers would say, yes, we build bridges. But I actually don't think that engineers build bridges. They built a connection and that's the service that is provided. The, the bridge is incidental uh, to that. The real importance is the delivery of the service that connects people. And that means you have to think about 
how that that bridge works for the people who are using it and and how it's connecting uh, people how it is connecting trade how it it can help to to prevent climate change impacts if there is flooding or landslides or uh, or similar things that relationship between infrastructure assets and the service they provide to people and the risks to both from climate change impacts is illustrated by work ongoing to restore New York's subway lines following Hurricane Sandy nearly a decade ago in 2012. This was a major shock to all of us. In 2012, there was Hurricane Sandy, which became Superstorm Sandy. Essentially, the hurricane was swept uh, inland by another uh, low that was coming across the continental United States, and that created an enormous storm and, uh, and run-up. This is Tom O'Rourke, the Thomas R. Briggs Professor in Engineering Emeritus at Cornell University and an expert in engineering infrastructure resilience. There was a rise in the water table of about 12 feet, which inundated uh, Lower Manhattan. Uh, we never thought we would see Lower Manhattan underwater. It's quite significant. And, and of course, there was a tremendous impact on the infrastructure there. The, uh, there were 23 separate tunnels flooded and uh, to this day, we're still working on the rehabilitation of some of these tunnels. But what happens is that, uh, that salt water gets entrained within the tunnel structure. And it's incredibly hard to get out. It's, it's impossible to get out on short-term notice that they have to return the system to operation. So basically the systems get returned, but they're not quite fully functional and they get less functional with time. So I, I was involved a lot with, uh, with the Governor Cuomo of New York uh, State on the L-Line uh, tunnels, the rehabilitation for those. As Tom says, after four weeks of intense work, much of the subway was back in operation. They were responsible for about 250,000 riders per day, and they were going to be closed for about uh, 15 to 18 months, and that was politically untenable. So we, uh, we worked a solution to keep them open, but, but they're a good demonstration of the fact that, that the, the hurricane was in 2012. The repair uh, was in uh, 2020. So eight years after the event, you're still uh, having rehabilitation. And New York's commuters are feeling the disruption caused by it. The subway's lack of resilience all those years ago is still costing New Yorkers time, as well as costing the operator money. It's a lesson focusing investment today. In New York City, the uh, major projects, uh, for example, the Gateway Project, which is the perhaps largest infrastructure project for the United States, is to build new tunnels for Amtrak uh, to carry commuter uh, traffic uh, across the Hudson River into New York City uh, and take lots of cars off the road. And, and, and currently, it's being driven by the concern with respect to flooding. The new tunnels, known as the Gateway Program, are costing about $13 billion, but are calculated to keep New York moving if or when another superstorm strikes. And, and that's completely driven by the, the need for transportation, but also the, the need to make infrastructure resilient, to have some redundancy, have more than one point of failure so that the essential services can be delivered to the communities that depend upon them. The hope is that new technology may go some way to helping reduce the costs of building resilience, that digital revolution coming to our aid again. 
This is Mark Enzer, Mott McDonald's Chief Technical Officer and Head of the National Digital Twin Programme at the Centre for Digital Built Britain. I think what we're talking about here mainly is that there's massive opportunity to, to, to drive for better outcomes for people and society and for nation by using our systems better uh, and recognising that connection uh, between the system of systems uh, that is the built environment. We've, we've built it and we've connected it up and we need a way of, of using it the best we can. And we now have digital tools that enable us and help us to manage complex systems. So that's what we should be doing is, is designing uh, those tools to help us to get the very best out of what we've got in the service of people. Uh, so that, that's, how we, that's how you get it. It's by starting with the end in mind, uh, which is these desirable outcomes. And then kind of in some ways working back, you know, what do we have to do to run our systems in a way that delivers those outcomes? Therefore, what kind of digital tools do we need to uh, enable us and, and to design good tools to do good things? And one of these tools that Mark puts forward is digital twins, which regular listeners will be fully familiar with by now. So we've, we've had models for a long time uh, and we've become very good at modelling, actually, where we can use all sorts of different shapes and sizes of models to help us understand bits of systems and sometimes whole systems. But very often those models are, are fed by offline data. Now, what we can start to do now is connect the model up to the thing that it's modeling so that you get a, a data connection, a dynamic data connection between the physical world and the digital world. Uh, that then means that the, the models are, are directly modeling the thing that's happening at that, at that time. Uh, and we can also imagine connecting the digital twins up so that you can get an ecosystem of connected digital twins. This is something that, that we kind of have to do. Uh, particularly, I think if, if um, we're now in this state where total mass of the built environment exceeds the um, biomass. You remember that? That came out recently. I mean, it's kind of saying that the built environment really matters. It's having a massive impact uh, on this, this planet. So we've got to manage it properly. And because it's become so interconnected, it, it becomes an absolute imperative that we manage it as a system. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. Our producers are Alex Konica, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, Velo Mitrovich, and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Konica. My co-host was Rian Owen. Script editing by Bernadette Ballantyne and Andrew Melius. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own mitigated risk is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Mott McDonald, with thanks also to Cornell University and the Centre for Digital Built Britain. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reeby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. <laughs>